Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz, best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is Marlon Fuentes, a nationally recognized independent media artist working in film and photography. His work has been shown and collected in major museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim Museum, the National Gallery of Art, the National Museum of American History, the Library of Congress, the Pele Center for Media, the Netherlands Film Museum, and the Cultural Center of the Philippines, among many others. Today, we are going to discuss his groundbreaking film, Bontoc Eulogy. And Heather and Marlon, so glad to have you both on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claire, for the... Yeah, thank you, Claire, for the lovely introduction. And Marlon, I'm so honored to speak with you today. Bontoc Eulogy is such a compelling film. It's super creative and poetic and powerful, and it's about a nearly forgotten piece of history, something that's both fascinating and gut-wrenching. And for anyone who isn't familiar with Bontoc Eulogy, can you please describe what it's about and what motivated you to make it? It's a, um, I would call it an experimental documentary um, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you this, Heather. It's showing on Criterion Channel right now for the next six months. Oh, that's so, Yeah, oh, so people w- who would like to see it can can look it up there. Um, that's great. That's great. So, so the this was about the World's Fair of 1904, which was about maybe five, six, seven years after the um, Spanish-American War were the Philippines was uh, bought by the U.S. from Spain. And then in 1904, um, this was all the rage before, they had World's Fair where they displayed their subjects. They displayed countries. It was kind of a mix between an, uh, an industrial fair, commerce, entertainment. So that's where the um, Filipinos and um, uh, specifically the, the tribal uh, communities in the Philippines were exhibited in what was called the Philippine Village. So it was, a, it was a film centered around a real historical event. I see. And when did you first find out that the Filipino people were put on display in the 1904 World Fair? I mean, to me, it's almost like they're, they're put on display like zoo animals. I mean, it's just, it's so shocking by today's standards. What happened was um, I actually, when I was in Philly in in um, the late 70s, I was in a party and there was an old lady who told me, oh, I remember, she said, I remember my, my grandma when I was a kid that um, the Filipinos uh, were displayed and they were living on trees. And, and I kind of made a mental note of that and then 
years later, um, when I was doing my research, I, I realized, like, oh, I, I never knew this. And then it just occurred to me that that was the inception of that anecdote that, indeed, there were Filipinos who were living on trees. And they recreated uh, some of the tribal um, architecture where they would have small trees and and the the local villages were, were recreated. And I searched around the Internet and um, or, or in the library, the Internet wasn't that big yet before. And I realized that, oh, there was this big kind of historic extravaganza called the 1904 World's Fair that was celebrating the Louisiana Purchase um, um, history. Um, and so I, I began to think of making a film uh, that was was around the World's Fair. At that point, I didn't know yet what I was going to do, but I knew it was a as a nice tableau, and I I just started reading uh, about it. Well, it's really fascinating. I, I've also heard that um, at that World's Fair, there were preemie babies put on display in tiny incubators for people to observe. And again, by today's standards, it's just it's really hard to imagine the idea of putting people on display like this. Um, you're the narrator for this film, and you tell the story in such a poetic and poignant way. You say things like, um, home is what you try to remember, not what you try to forget. And also there's a Filipino saying, he who does not look back from whence he came will never reach his destination. And I wonder if you could talk about the process of writing the script. Yeah. Um, I actually, I just... It was kind of a very informal but organic process. I knew that it was the search. Uh, the, the literary conceit was the narrator, um, who was also the filmmaker, uh, as a character in the film, is looking for his grandfather. And in retrospect, I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, um, it came at a, at a very turbulent time for me. And I kind of used the film... Um, as a kind of substitute for for a lot of the things that I was trying to locate myself um, at that time. Um, the the impetus for the film actually was um, uh, this is kind of a side story. My 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 mom's family they had they owned a, a commercial photo studio. They were one of the biggest um, pre-war um, commercial studio. And what happened was all the photographs that she's made, and probably thousands, if not 10,000, of the family, kind of ethnographic documentation of Manila, they were, all all of those photographs were destroyed in a flood while I was here in the States. And I was actually hoping to make a kind of an extended home video, I mean, a, a, a film, a whole movie, based on those photographs. But since all of those sorts of materials were lost, I say, well, I guess I'm just going to create my own story based on, on, on material from the U.S. And that's, that's what kind of started it. But going back to the, your question about writing, um, I, I, I really didn't sit down to say, okay, I'm going to make a script. So I just kind of organically created notes and and ideas um, 
in, in a kind of poetic way because poetry was my first my first medium. I was starting I started writing poetry when I was uh, in my early teens, um, and so the way I the way I wrote the quote unquote script was kind of small patches of ideas and and kind of rhythmic language and and then when i got the photographs then i kind of appended the writing with the photographs and then i started more formally in writing the script so it was kind of multi-stage so to speak i see quite a process well you did an amazing job I, I must say sometimes i hear documentary filmmakers who do vo in their own films and i think they do it um, to save money sometimes but in your case um you know you just did such an excellent job i mean it you you know there couldn't be a better you know choice than you telling this story could you talk a little bit about the process of finding the archival imagery that you used in the film? It's it's just super fascinating, and and you tell the story of um, of of these Filipino people doing dances of mourning while these uh, onlookers watch them at the World's Fair and so forth, and they just don't understand what they're seeing, and it, it's just it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, the 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 process of the archival research was was actually quite extended. My sources um, was the National Archives in Washington D.C. and and the head of the of the the archives itself was uh, I I think he, he's probably retired, but his name was Jake Homiak. He's an anthropologist, and he he basically gave me. Uh, carte blanche in terms of going in the basement and looking at the photographs and there were thousands thousands of photographs and I, I literally so I just had white gloves and I was shifting through it and um, I was able to rephotograph all of those so right now I'm in my dark room and in in one of my shelves I have I have like two shelves uh, I mean uh, two two layers of photographs that I rephotographed and those were my original those are kind of were my original um, in, uh, uh, photographs that I then filmed uh, on, on a flat top table and uh, the other source of archival images was uh, pen they they um, allowed me to copy uh, films that that was in their anthropological collection uh, and there were actually shots of um, salvage footage from from the U.S. Um, GIs, and and also they lent me the the book by Ferdinand Blumentritt, who was um, a an anthropologist and an ethnographer who who took a lot of um, photographs of the the tribes in the Philippines. It was like a compendium that Ferdinand Blumentritt was. Uh, was doing and and also I was able to go into the Mutter Museum where I shot some of the the footage where I was walking um, um, among the skulls and various um, ethnographic um, collection of the Mutter Museum so there was there was a lot of um, primary research not only on the photographs, but also working through the the text um, of 
historical back and forth um, correspondence between the owners of the the fair and the universities that actually in the end were bidding for the bodies that of, of the Igorots who died at the fair. It was a very extensive historical research. I'm not a pro- I'm not a professionally trained historian, so I was just like uh, doing it for the film and and essentially getting the backstory behind what was going on in the fair, as well as the real infrastructure of historically accurate data about what happened, who got sick, where, where did the body go. Um, it actually devolved, in my end, as a kind of detective story as I was trying to flesh out the underlying historical narrative and, and factual content for the film. Yeah, I, I have to say when I rewatched it and I've seen the film several times and I was telling you, I mean, for me, each time I feel like I see something new in it. But I when I watched it yesterday, I thought about how true crime is so popular right now. And I thought, wow, yep. in a way, this is really a true crime story. Um, yep. So uh, you did mention how you had this interaction with this woman at a party and she had mentioned um, this story of the Filipino people in the trees at the World Fair. Did you interview people for this film as part of your research? And I guess you've already touched a little bit on, you know, the other kinds of research that you did. But um, I just wondered, did did you also interview people and and take notes on what they told you? No, I didn't interview people. My, my, My research was primarily concentrated on digging up archival material, visual, as well as written. I see. And, 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 and I also was one, books okay. about, uh, about the world sphere. I see. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I had never heard about this until I saw the film, which is part of the reason I found it so fascinating. Um, and as you know, I showed it to a, a group of students uh, last semester, and only one person in the entire class uh, was aware of um, – of this happening. So uh, not many people know about it. And I'm wondering, could you tell us how old were you when you moved here from the Philippines and have you ever returned? Yeah, I was 21. And uh, since then I've just been working uh, on my artwork, but I, I did return about, about six years ago. So for about 40 years, uh, or, or maybe 35 to 40 years, I, I didn't go back because um, I had very bad memories of, of the Philippines. I was I was a refugee from from the Marcos uh, regime, martial law. Um, I went to a, a very radical high school. It was called Philippine Science High School, and um, a lot of my classmates actually. Uh, went to the mountains and joined the resistance against uh, Marcos. And um, so when I came here, um, I, I just didn't have the, the courage to go back and confront um, what happened uh, when I was in high school. <clears throat> um, a friend of mine was killed in an explosion by a, a by a terrorist and he he died because the the bomb which is a molotov cocktail hit him right on the head he was dead instantly 
and you know his remains were splattered all over me because I was literally about ten inches away from from Francis. And so there was a lot of ghosts. There was a lot of memories of of strife, of violence, mainly political. Uh, so when I came here, it was like, okay, um, I can kind of rebuild my life. But after a while, there was like a vacuum, and and so I, I needed uh, a, a sort of an art object to kind of physicalize uh, as a as a cathartic moment. <laughs> So that's so the inception of of the film had a lot of um, psychological kind of gravity around it. Gosh, Marlon, I never knew this backstory. I mean, I'm so sorry you went through that, but I, I definitely do think you poured all of that, you know, hurt and anger and you know questions into the film because it's just it's just so compelling. And um, I wonder if you could talk about. Um, your decision uh, to make a film about something that happened so long ago where there was limited archival and and um, deciding to combine fact and fiction and, and how that worked, weaving those things together to tell this story. Yeah. Um, I, my, my grounding as far as cinema is concerned was very much experimental work. So... I always wanted to do something about cinema itself. My my aesthetic, my artistic goal was always about form. And so I, I gave myself the, the artistic goal of ultimately my ideal audience when I was making this film were people who are visual anthropologists who are very familiar with the conversation in ethnographic filmmaking, but I wanted to use that as the starting point because I wanted to to create my own archaeology, so to speak. My, my vision was that I was digging an, an ancient site, and, and I happened upon a site, and there were artifacts, there, there, there were shards, etc., and so the 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 glue that would put them all together was the kind of emotional resonance and at that point i said to myself i wanted to to create a story that was visible and watchable and to a certain level engaging and entertaining but but i wanted to to create a multi-level text that picked and choose uh fact and fiction and, and 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 make a statement that you know I am using cinema to create a different reality based on the accumulated fictional and accumulated um, artifacts of, of my research. And so in answer to your question, it was it was kind of my aesthetic decision to to see what I could do, recreate something that engaged or represented truth in one way by adding fiction and historical fact. So it was, it was kind of, I was kind of creating not so much a documentary film as much as a kind of um, world building based on the conventions of the documentary. 
So that was that was my primary objective. And also my ideal audience was someone who is very familiar with the tropes of truth claiming in documentary and then playing with that initial knowledge. So I had different audiences in mind. I had Filipinos, Phil Ams, who live here, who can kind of see straightforward the text of the film as a history of the St. Louis welfare and the Filipinos who were brought there. But then there's the other audience who were familiar with, with the conventions and history behind early cinema, uh, construction of kind of the, the narrative uh, credibility issue in, in, in documentary, and people who were kind of conversant with, with the aims of experimental film, which ultimately I would categorize this as. Uh, many years ago, I heard you speak about this film, and I remember that you said uh, you you tell you tell a lie to tell the truth, and that yeah. that I always remember that because it's it's really um, valid and a good way to describe how you made this film, and I think it's so much more compelling than. Um, a kind of more typical documentary where someone would just be recounting what happened in the past because you really immerse us in the story in a, just a very different way. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about the children that you included in the film. Yeah, this were, this were, um, these kids, actually the, the, the little boy, he's now uh, a very well-known um, doctor. He went to. Oh, um, <clears throat> his name's Mike. Uh, I haven't seen him in a while, but he's now a doctor. And the girl is my godchild. Her name's Nikki. Uh, she has two kids now, and she's a nurse. She's uh, she used to work in ICU, and now it's, I forget where where she is. But um, they were the daughters of some of my best friends, and this was in. They lived in Washington, D.C., and I was trying to create um, the, the backup, uh, I mean, the, the, the background that I was um, a, a person who was seeking um, where my family is, and so I was trying to create the, the, the backstory that these are my children, so I used them as actors. Uh, but there, there were um, these are children of very close friends of mine in Washington D.C. Well, in the film, um, you know, they're they're portrayed as your children, and it's it's yeah. to me it's very ironic because I saw this film first at the Robert Flaherty Film Seminar, and as um, some of our listeners will know, uh, Robert Flaherty is often considered the grandfather of documentary film, and he also assembled basically a, a fake family for his iconic film, The Nick of the North. And I, uh, I actually thought that you had sort of purposely followed his lead as kind of a nod to Nanook. And so when we talked about this film um, last year, I was so surprised that you had, you had made the decision on your own to include the children in a similar way as part of this narrative you were constructing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah, very when, interesting. When I started, when I started uh, working on this film, I had – very peripheral knowledge of Nanook. 
uh, and it's only later that I, I actually dug into it. It's, it's a good thing. Um, sometimes ignorance is very useful for, for filmmakers and, and artists because then they don't have the weight. Um, they don't have the weight of history leaning on them and they can pretend that they don't know anything about Nanook and then they just go their own way and it's more organic. What happens it can mess up the artist's mind when they have this, the torrent and, and the gravitas of history weighing on them and they say, what am I going to do? I, I need to do something that's a commentary uh, about this because this is such a canonical piece of filmmaking. I, I'm, I'm so glad in retrospect that I didn't have that burden. Because sometimes ignorance uh, of a subject will actually force uh, a maker to create a much more engaging and, and psychologically uh, resonant um, psychological um, reality for themselves rather than depending on the history or a, a piece of uh, important work. So it, it, ignorance sometimes gives people freedom. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, there's a scene in the film where there's a man walking through the forest and there's these plants around him that have these just absolutely gigantic leaves. And I was wondering yeah. if you could tell us where you filmed that. Oh, yeah. This is, this is San Diego. Um, I brought my, my CP-16. Um, I, had a, I still have a CP-16. It's probably deteriorating now. But the CP-16 was uh, for filmmakers. Uh, year CP16 is was one of the most dominant 16 uh, mm cameras that were used in by documentary um, news news uh, filmmakers news reporters. So I had a CP16 and I filmed it and um, <coughs> that was my friend Enrico Obusan uh, who. Uh, interestingly enough, is the younger brother of Ramon Obusan, who is one of the most, he, he, he passed away maybe more than 10 years ago. Ramon, uh, we call him Kuya Ramon. Uh, Kuya is the respectful form for older brother in Tagalog. So um, Ramon Obusan was the head of the, uh, the folk folkloric um, dance group, and he was known as a kind of dance ethnographer. He had hours and hours, hundreds of hours, dance footage and ritual images uh, for, for tribal um, events in, in the Philippines. And uh, Enrico Busan was my associate producer, but he was, I also put him uh, as an Igorot because he actually lived for several years in Mountain Province, which is the, the setting where, where the Bontoc um, community is um, is based in. It's called Mountain Province. It's one of the pro northern provinces in the big island of Luzon. And so Rico lived there. So he actually made the costumes um, <coughs> that he was using. Those were authentic costumes that he recreated because he was also kind of a substitute costumer for his older brother's uh, sets and costumes when, when they were traveling around the Philippines. 
Oh, wow, that's that's really interesting. And by the way, I'm sorry we caught you at a time for this interview when you were recovering from a, a cold, but um, so uh, hopefully your voice is hanging in there. Um, yep. So the music in the film is just really terrific, and I wonder if you could talk about it. Oh, yeah. This is amazing because no one actually asked me about the music. That, that was its, that, it, it, it was its own work stream. I was fanatical about um, getting recordings um, from the Library of Congress, and I was also doing research on the kind of ritual music that was being used in in Bontoc and the other tribes. And I some of some of the research that I found was not just um, recordings. But also uh, transcriptions of music in Western notation. So, for example, the funeral background music when that there was a was a, a grief grieving very very sad music that was from a transcription of an actual um, funeral song. So I had the notes right written by a musicologist. And then I gave that to my composer, Doug Quinn, um, who is a, a recordist of um, orn- ornithological and various forest wildlife. Um, he, he was the, Doug Quinn, I think, uh, a few years ago was the head of the NEA in North Carolina, but was also uh, a, a composer and a wildlife recordist, right? So I gave that to Doug Quinn. I gave a lot of my collection of the transcriptions and the recording, and so that's where we we started uh, to lay the, the the groundwork for the audio, for the music, uh, which is kind of orchestral. Those were all digitized music. And so what we did essentially was to transform the historical patterns and the historical artifacts that I, I was able to to gather from musicological research, and then I gave it to him, and I said, "Can we revive this and and make this into an orchestral thematic uh, for the scene that I was thinking of?" So there, it, it was kind of multi-layered, even. The, the music behind the marching band, what happened was I, I looked at the, the time frame when that was done, and I did research on the kind of percussive band music that was being made during 1904. <clears throat> then I gave that to Doug Quinn, and that's how he developed the kind of discordant rhythmic pattern behind the marching scenes uh, on the fair. So all, all of the music that you see are kind of revived and, and revised music based on original um, work that are either transcribed or recorded. Well, that's super interesting. I'm glad I asked you about it. The the music definitely stands out, and it's it's just it really adds to the film. And I'm wondering how long did you work on this film? And I guess I'll ask at the same time: how long did you work on it, and how long how did you fund it? 
Uh, it was funded mostly by uh, the National Asian American Telecommunications Association, formerly called NATA, NAATA. I don't know if they're still uh, existing. And some of the funding was from um, the CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So mostly um, what, I, what I hate about filmmaking is fund, fundraising. Um, it is not only tedious, it's really very draining. You need a certain level of hardiness <laughs> facing institutions yep. and, and writing proposals and then having to do with all the budgeting, accounting. Uh, it, was, it was very very tedious and very draining. But, but, but you know, that's it's neither here nor there. That's just part of making films on, on a certain level of uh, scale. But it, it took me... Um, at least three years, maybe 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 three and a half years, um, of just furiously gathering the material, rewriting the script, uh, writing more, writing more, revising, changing. It was there was no set pattern in the film, and then all of a sudden, um, after several configurations it just came together by its own <laughs> so it, it was it was very laborious to say the least yeah did you uh you mentioned shooting some of it on 16 did you edit this on a flatbed uh yes i did the rough cut um basically on on my steam back and then uh sort of writing it Writing it by uh, writing the script by by longhand, and so it's sort of like my assembly, not even rough cut. I would I would just say assembly cut. I was using my Steenbeck. I still have my Steenbeck right now. I don't oh, know if it's working. I, love, I haven't used it. Uh, yeah, I see. I yeah, I love flatbed editing, although I haven't done it in a very long time. Um, what what is the biggest challenge you had to overcome to make this film, and also what was the most satisfying part of making the film? Um, the the most the most challenging actually <clears throat> was the sound, because you know um, in a sound studio when, when you're doing when you're doing sound for um, PBS the level of play is much, much higher than if you were just doing a small piece for YouTube. There's a cert- there's certain level of technical. I'm sure you, you've experienced this. There's a certain level of technical um, game that you have to follow. So I, I had to pay a lot of money for, for a, a sound mixer, and we were doing it. Uh, I remember this is days and days of, of laying the of laying the sound, the the other issue as well was the conforming, because remember this was this was literally shot on sixteen, and so the technical issues were doing telecine uh, for those things, and um, and then conforming it, uh, which was very tedious. I was working with the negative conformer. Uh, somewhere in the bowels of Hollywood, near Sunset, and it was it was this is old um, old man who was at that point maybe in his late 60s, and I remember his studio was full of junk, 
It's full of old equipment, footage from the films that he's edited. I mean, it's literally a labyrinth. And all he did was conforming. He was like this mad genius, but really, really OCD. And I was looking at my my um, notes. Uh, they were all handwritten. They were. I wasn't using a computer. So the the the, the technical nitty gritty of working with sixteen uh, mm film, doing telecine, doing conforming. Um, it, it was it was very tedious. Uh, I think that filmmaking right now is is a lot less tedious from a mechanical standpoint. So that's that's what I remember from that film. But but on the other hand, what was very satisfying <coughs> was because of the slowness and tediousness of the process, where you were working mainly with your hand. The ironically created a lot of space. Uh, on the psyche for deep thinking. So it's almost like you were using a mala or a rosary uh, and you were palming the rosary, but at the same time you're engaging the mind on a narrative uh, level as well as a visual uh, aesthetic level. So it was it was a good combination for me. Um, and, and even now in, in my work, I, I work a lot with the with analog, even in writing, etc. Um, so, so right now, I think modern, modern day, current filmmakers are 100% digital, and I, I think that will also have an effect on the kind of work that they do. Yeah, that makes sense. What advice do you have for um, first-time filmmakers? I think that. Um, the key to film and to any other kind of art to create a beeline to your artistic self. Um, so I think that at the minimum in whatever field or niche you're doing, you have to have an active journaling process. You have to have a notebook all the time because that's what will engage your aesthetic self that, that that that's what will connect what's important for you and and creating a conversation with yourself is is the background is the fundamental fuel for creative progress number 1 uh so have have a uh, have an installed system of capturing any and all thoughts throughout the day and engage in a dialogue with the work. And I think that writing is a fundamental kind of infrastructure that an artist in whatever medium has to create because writing kind of primes your your main niche. Um, so if you're a filmmaker or a photographer or a painter, um, having a regular self-reflection process so that you're always near to the kind of mystical, undefinable energy inside you, that you have access to that. And and then it's just a matter of, of the artist, the maker, becoming a steward and caretaker of the work. But But I think that the primary thing, I don't know if this is being taught in art school nowadays, is to be very close to the real bone of what your work is doing and, and create 
have the ability to create space and a margin for that inner studio voice that is developing constantly, whether you're asleep or not. Then the second part is learn a craft well such that the ideas that have been generated in the first stage that I just described to the surface easily. And, and so the idea, I'm actually writing this. I'm, I'm creating a course about it, uh, about the difference between the inner studio and the outer studio. And the, the outer studio is about um, um, managing the, the creative energies and minimizing the noise so that you have a direct connection with the work that, that is coming out and, and that is brewing inside you. So it's, it's a combination of reflection and then building a facility to harness this raw material of ideas from the id, from the ego, and underneath you so that then you create a kind of creative factory where you know very well how to work from raw material to product. That, that's, my, that's my advice. Thing I yeah, didn't can, can I insert you? something? It, okay. it's, yeah. The other thing that I wanted to insert is um, do not, and, and I know this is very easy, but it's very easy to, to get ideas for your work from outside, and that's per- perfectly valid. Um, it, it's sort of like the market research. But I think each person has to find out the, the unique organic balance inside them in terms of choosing the ideas or generating ideas for their work. Work comes out only in two ways. One is from inside and then two from the outside. However, right now, outside influences via the web, via YouTube, and what people are doing, there's an incredible density of outside influences. And that can drown people in terms of masking what they have inside. So that's the third component of, of finding what is what's the sweet spot of idea generation from inside, from your own psychological reality, and then from outside in terms of observing and what captures your imagination. That, that the ascertaining that mix and how that mix affects the kind of work that only you can do, that's a major theme that has to be followed uh, very closely and very delicately because that, that is the secret to sustainability uh, over decades of work, that, that balance of being able to cultivate your own fire, being able to cultivate the ember of your fire, that's the key to sustainable work because if your source, the internal factory of your creative process uh, is not balanced and, and is affected by a lot of things outside of you, it's very hard to sustain it because the noise uh, of making livelihood or of, uh, of doing something for a living, doing commercial work, that, that's a very uh, hard thing to manage. So that in itself is a meta skill uh, for all kinds of uh, makers. Yeah, and is there anything else I um, I didn't ask you that you would like to share with us? Um, 
I think that the last question you asked is actually good. Um, it's important to know when I, I spoke, I, I remember I spoke this, to, I, I told this to your class. It's very important to understand the lineage of your work, um, what school you belong to, what kind of making uh, do you classify yourself, and, and then find out the boundaries because the boundaries of your form actually will liberate you. So that, again, it, it's a balance between using the rigidity of the structure and learning your history, learning the conversation that preceded you, and then at the same time, organically cultivating your own psyche and your own ideas, and then mixing that. That's the fun part of art. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And um, I want to give you the opportunity to share with us, um, you know, ways people can follow you if they're interested in your work, like your social media handles, website, maybe just remind us again where people can see your film. Um, they can see my film, uh, the Criterion Channel, and it's a it's part of a piece about uh, uh, filmmaking in the '90s. So you have several um, Asian American filmmakers there: Ria Tajiri. These are the um, Twin Min Hot film is there. So these are these are they have become part of the the Asian American canon. Uh, most most of them are very cutting edge, kind of experimentally derived film, even though they're documentary, they're personal narrative. So uh, catch it. Uh, media wise, uh, I don't have, I don't participate in a lot of social media. Um, I just do my work, um, and and some of these things. Uh, um, I find uh, as a distraction, I had I have an Instagram account, which is um, I, I almost never use it. Um, so, but but the best way to get in touch with me is just um, email me, and it's mfuentesmedia at gmail dot com, or you can uh, ask the criteria. You can um, email Criterion Channel. And my distributor for this is um, Cinema Guild, so you can get copies of the film there for institutions. Uh, Cinema Guild is one, or you can go to Sentient Art Film, one word, Sentient, S-E-N-T-I-E-N-T, film, sentientfilmart.com. You can check them up, and that's um, headed by Abby. Abitan and of course Keisha Knight, who is the director, uh, executive director. It's a kind of um, distribution outfit um, that curated this in the first place. So you can contact those those um, organizations. Well, I'm so glad that the film is still, you know, out there for people to see. Um, I, you know, as I mentioned, I saw this film first quite quite a many years ago but um it's one of the yeah, it has, a, from shelf, it has a very long shelf life yeah yeah from time to time i would still be thinking about it and so to me that's kind of a sign of a really you know great film if you're still thinking about it you know years after you've seen it and um and and when i finally had the opportunity to see it again 
it, you know, it didn't, it didn't disappoint. It held up and, and, um, you know, truly this was one of the films that motivated me to become a documentary filmmaker because I was so impressed by it and intrigued by it. And I, I just was so uh, moved by the way you told the story. So, you know, I just, you know, want to applaud you for that. And thank you so much for making time to talk with us today. And thank you, thank you. also to everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Claire. And thanks everyone for listening. Yes. Very much enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you both. Thank you. All right. Goodbye. All right. All right. Be well, everyone. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at FromTheHeartProductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.